If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, and uh, we're going to continue through Ephesians the, the next few weeks, and kind of builds on what we did the last uh, several weeks, and over here to my left and your right, we've got some props, and for the ADHD brethren in the crowd, we will get to the props, so sometimes it can be uh, more of a distraction, but actually, I mean, we've got, uh, how many of you, when you go on a trip, you've got somebody in your family, if you're going like, let's say a weekend trip, and it's just for a weekend, you with me, right, a weekend trip, and a person in your family misunderstands that as a six-month safari, right? And they pack accordingly. Is anybody, anybody in your family like that? Um, we've got baggage, man. We've got Samsonite uh, baggage. And uh, those of you Dumb and Dumber fans can definitely refer- reference the Samsonite we have up here. We've got bags of all sorts. And then we have a uh, wall made of semi short wall made out of cinder blocks. What in the world does this have to do with Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 22? Well, the Apostle Paul builds this picture and here it is. That through the power of God, baggage that you bring into your relationship with Christ can through the power of God later be transformed into a blessing. So if we could put it more succinctly, God can transform your baggage into a blessing. And not only that, through the power of God, walls within relationships can be taken down. And if we did like an in-depth survey, an in-depth study on each person that we have here today, it's very likely that every single one of us can look back upon our present lives and on our past experience and think of some people that we truly care about or that we want to care about, but there's some type of wall there in the relationship. There's just there's something that's been broken. There's something that's there that shouldn't be there. It's like when you think of that person or when you have a conversation with that person, there's, it's just not right. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not something that they just come out and say or that you just simply say, look, I don't want to talk to you because, but it's like there's, there's static on the line, so to speak. The Apostle Paul addresses these amazing topics that people 2,000 years ago dealt with and that we still deal with today. But one thing is the same, and please hear me. The power of God through the Gospel can transform baggage into blessings and it can also, through the power of God and the Gospel, He can tear down the walls within relationships. Isn't that a good thing? church, that we serve a God who's able to transform things that we think are hopeless into something that's awesome. Now notice, we're going to jump right into the text. So go with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, therefore remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. And we're going to get to that. And by the way, if you've read your Bible at all, you've probably come to this and you're like, what in the world, out of all of the things that God could say to us, why does it seem this constant theme of 
of circumcision. It seems very weird and awkward and, and, and sometimes very crude. We're going to talk about what that really means and really how it applies um, today with our understanding of the gospel. Notice the last part of verse 11, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. So, so here, here's what's going on. Paul is addressing people who are not Jews. Now, here's a little bit of background. Um, We've been studying Ephesians, and for some people, they're like, what is an Ephesian, and why does that even matter? I uncovered some really cool stuff, background information, about what Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, was really like. It was called the first and the greatest metropolis of Asia. This was like the New York City of the Asian part of the Roman Empire. But it wasn't just a big city. It had things going on such as gladiatorial contests. How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Anybody? All right. When you see the crowds there, the crowds are watching um, people kill each other. How many of you are fans of boxing? Any boxing fans? All right, a few. Any uh, mixed martial arts? Ultimate fighting? Any Karate Kid fans? Going back in the day. All right, cool. By the way, if you ever tried to do that in a fight in school, you would get destroyed. They, I mean, you should be sued for like, you know, I mean, who's going to do this and win a fight? Seriously. So, like, we're thinking about fighting and in any, even in the martial arts, like even in ultimate fighting, if a guy goes down and the other guy is on top of him and the guy on the bottom is out cold, what does the ref do? He comes in and the commentators always say he's protecting the fighter. Because people want to see people get beaten up, but not necessarily killed. All right, time machine, we're there. A guy is facing another guy, and they don't have four-ounce gloves. They have swords and spears. Hello. And they had an amphitheater, a theater that set over, check this out, 50,000 people. So you're at like a, a somewhat of a Virginia Tech-ish experience and you're watching and people are killing each other. When the guy goes down, the crowd cheers and then this guy is unarmed and the other guy still has a weapon and he looks at the crowd what to do and they either say kill him or let him live. And many times, I mean, are, are, we, are we tracking with this? Are we connecting? They would watch people kill each other and not only that but they would bring animals into this theater as well so you're facing a lion i don't care give me muhammad ali give me brock lesnar i don't want to face a lion because after the human fighters beat me up i know they're not going to eat me amen i mean there's a little bit of a difference there so you've got you've got people killing people and then people killing animals and animals killing people and everybody's not only watching they're approving of it you talk about a dark cold heartless place not only that but it had the temple of diana or artemis which was the great the the largest pagan temple in the the known world so you could have people all over the world 
And they would come, and this was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, they would come to this humongous temple with all of these like these marble uh, tiles that went up. There was marble on the ceiling, and they would come in, and there was all sorts of perverted rituals that would happen in the temple. And Diana, the goddess who they worshipped, let's just say that her statue was pornographic at the very least. And twisted at the very most. I mean, this was a dark place to where people would come and they would engage in the worship of false gods and then they would go and watch people killed and they would watch animals cruelly killed. And not only that, it was a place to where there was a huge idol manufacturer. People would make idols to sell to the people coming to worship Diana. And if that wasn't worse, through all of this like witchcraft and this is not like, you know... um, 101 level stuff. These people studied witchcraft, sorcery, the demonic arts, the dark arts, whatever title you want to put onto it, to the point that, check this out, there were many people in Ephesus who were demonic, or demonized or demon possessed. Okay? Now, I'm not a big fan of, of demonic type of movies. I don't watch those. I try not to put myself in that area, but some of you maybe have seen parts of uh, the exorcism of Emily Rose or, or the exorcist and how we watch those things and it's like, I think I'm going to sleep with all of the lights on tonight. Can I get a witness? I mean, those things are like freaky. They're kind of otherworldly. They're like, you know, I'm 39 I'm going to call my mom to come tuck me in at night. They're scary things. Check this out. There were so many people that were filled with demons. God just chose to give the Apostle Paul a supernatural power to heal people of that. So Paul would go around and he's like, okay, you're, you've got a demon? Okay, in the name of Jesus, and the demon would have to leave. Um, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but I have hair-raising stories from missionaries on the mission field. Actually, my dad, when he was a youth minister, there's a, a kid who had a, a demonic type of experience uh, in the middle of youth group, got down on the concrete floor, began to headbang the floor with his head. Um, I have stories from friends who have been on the mission field, and they say, look, we are educated Western businessmen, but human logic cannot explain the demonic activity in places that are wholly given over to Satan. I was able to go to Haiti in uh, 2002. I would love to tell you some stories from there. In fact, Haiti is a country that the official religion is voodoo. But they very openly say the top dog within voodoo is who the Christians know as Satan. Now, I do not believe that we can make the connection that God sent the earthquake because of that. Um, Luke chapter 13 says that we shouldn't ask the question, why did all these people die in tragedies? But rather, if we've all sinned, why are the rest of us alive? Amen, church? So, so we don't want to play the, the uh, to try to use situations and try to say we know exactly what God is doing. But there was, a, a, this, this is crazy background info. In Acts chapter 19, there were these seven brothers, right? And they watched the power of God through the Apostle Paul, and they thought that it was like a cheap parlor trick. So they go to this guy who actually has... Check this out. He is actually demon-possessed. And they go and they try to... Um, use the name of Jesus, 
as an abracadabra type of cure. And then the demon speaking through the guy saying, Acts chapter 19, verse um, 14, or 15 rather, the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? So here's what happens. After he says, we don't even know you. You're not saved. You, you, if you're not saved, you can't combat the demonic forces with the power of God that you don't have. So this one dude who's demonic possessed, he's demonized. He beats down these seven other dudes to the point. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm not being graphic. This is in the Bible. They ran out of the house and he literally beat the pants off of them. They were naked. Y'all with me this morning? Let, let, let's, okay, he tore them apart so that they went seven against one and the seven lost. Ephesus was so filled with sorcery that when Greek and Roman writers would reference a particular book on sorcery, they would not call it a book on sorcery, but they would say, this is an Ephesian, Ephesian writing. Kind of like if you eat a beignet, we know that that comes from New Orleans. We know that if you eat a Krispy Kreme, that that comes from God. That's actually the manna that was talked about in the Old Testament. You guys didn't... I'm totally kidding. Some of you guys are like, whoa, I knew it was awesome. But like all of that, man, they, it was so filled, it was so perverse that they didn't even describe what the stuff was. They simply says it's from Ephesus. And if it came from Ephesus, people knew that it was rank with evil. So Rocky Mount Baptist Church gets in a time machine. Bill and Ted's excellent ventures, except for, you know, with committees. And so, uh, somewhat. We, we, we go back in time, and we get out, and we're in Ephesus. We see the perverted pagan worship. We see the demonic possession. We see the people selling idols to others. We see people killing one another. We see people killing animals. We see animals killing people. And everybody there is just so, yes! What would we do? But we say, man, this is, this is very, very dark. I don't want this to corrupt my kids. Let's go to some place that's easier to reach. Do you, th- do, you, do you think that we would do like so often we have the tendency in the church to do to say, well, I have my light, I have my Jesus, but I don't want the darkness over here like the bad kids, parents, grandparents, right? I don't want the bad kids to influence my kids. I want to hold on to my lights. And it's like, it's like we end up being like golems. You guys remember that Lord of the Rings? You know, my precious. And we got like our light of the gospel and we're holding on to that instead of sitting back and saying, okay, Darkness is really nothing more than the absence of light. So if we take our light, the darkness has no chance except for but to flee. Amen, church? And some people say, no, hold on. If the Apostle Paul went there, didn't he? Jeff, if I was like him, if I actually surrendered my life to Christ, wouldn't I have a lot to give up? There are many people in church who sit back and they say, oh man, missionaries and people like that, they give up so much. I'm going to give you a statement. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I can't keep my life. You cannot 
hold on to your life. We can get good medical insurance. We can eat all the weird health food that the weird health food people tell us to eat when we go into the health food store. They're like, come in. You know, they're like, you're like, I thought that health food would maybe make you look more healthy. I don't know. Make somebody mad. But I mean, like we could do all of that stuff, but we can't hang on to our life. So Jim Elliott, who actually lost his life sharing the gospel with a tribe of headhunting Indians in South America, he said, once again, please hear me. He says, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Oswald Chambers said, God nowhere tells us to give up things for the sake of giving them up. He tells us to give them up for the sake of the only thing worth having, which is life with himself. Teddy Roosevelt said, no man is worth his salt who is not ready at all times. I love this. Who's not ready at all times to risk his body, his risk his well-being, to risk his life in a great cause. And let me just like lay it out and be very real with you today. There is no greater cause than the gospel. Are you awake? I mean, there is no greater cause, there's no greater theme, there's no greater life than whatever your occupation is to serve Christ. A preacher friend of mine said this. This is so well put. He said, it's not what you do in terms of occupation, but it's what you do with what you do. You see, church, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to change your occupation, but it's allowing God to transform you as you work out your occupation. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, 24, but I do not consider my life of any account or as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the grace of God. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, he's actually leaving people who had been saved out of Ephesus. The leaders of the Ephesians church came and they saw the Apostle Paul and he said, man, at this time in my life, I don't consider my life as dear to myself. Question, do you consider your life more important than the Gospel? You know, often when God calls us to give up things or a way that we do, a way that we roll, all right, a way that we operate, it's very often that, that we sit back and we say, God, I, I, I see so much value in what I have been doing, but what God wants us to do is to take the blinders off and say, but that's nothing in comparison to what I have for you to do. Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. And then he says in verse 24, for whoever wishes to save his life for his sake will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall find it. Then that great but haunting verse, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but yet loses his own soul? Jesus is saying, look guys, Satan and the world tells you that if you put your life wholly, if you totally commit to me with everything that you are, that you're going to lose your life. It will be lame. It will be boring. It will be a waste. But what I'm telling you is that to live your life for yourself is a waste. But how awesome would it be if we truly, listen church, if we truly got on board and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, you know what Jesus, I don't care if you send me to Ephesus. I don't care if you tell me to go reconcile with that family member who there is a wall of separation between. Lord, I don't care if you tell me that I need to start dealing with my baggage. I will follow you. 
Now imagine you're the Apostle Paul. You're short. Church history says that he, he, he was bow-legged and he had a unibrow, but he had the face of an angel. Doesn't mean that he looked weird. It simply mean that he had, meant that he had so much joy that you said that's humanly impossible to have that much joy. You ever seen somebody and they're like cheesy happy? Right? Like not real happy. They've got like the big cheesy grin that like wraps around and connects on the back of their neck. They're like, hi. But you know they're thinking in their mind, get out. Like they just, they're just not genuine. The Apostle Paul, man, he was so genuine. And he's there. And he goes. And he's standing in front of the biggest pagan temple in the known world. And he looks at this huge amphitheater. Slaughter. He sees these people selling and worshiping idols. What does he have in his arsenal that could possibly compete with that? Students, please listen to me. Um, Popularity and numbers never equals truth. Amen, believers? Doesn't mean that if... Check it out. if, If everybody is doing it, that doesn't mean that it's right. And furthermore, man, I, like I've talked to so many young guys like, yo, dog, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. You ever know anybody like, like the young guy? You know, he's like, he's like 16, 17. Hey, man, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm my old man, yo. I don't want my mom telling me how to dress. I'm going to go into the Marine Corps. <laughs> Did you guys catch that? And you're like, bro, your world is getting ready to change. When you get up at oh dark 30 and you've got that guy with shoulders six feet wide and a waist like 12 inches wide spitting on your shoe, man, that, on your shoes, that, your world will change, son. Well, if you want to be a rebel, if you want to go against the tide, you don't necessarily, by the way, like everything from the redneck group at school to the goth group at school to the like death metal group at school to the I like to kill things and put the tail of the squirrel on my, you know, like my antenna on my car group, like whatever group it is. So many people say, well, I want to be different. All you do is join another group. You ever thought about that? And you got the people who are like, you know, man, I'm, I'm, I've got a car, I'm rich. And there's some people like, hey, I'm, I'm not rich. What now? You know, like everybody, like we want to put ourselves into groups. And if you truly want to be a rebel and go against the tide and be different, then simply stand up for Christ no matter what. Now, if you've been saved, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, that might be a good time to wave a hanky. Are you with me? Like, seriously, we've got to teach our students that being tough does not mean a certain level of your bench press or how much money you earn, but it is your commitment to Christ to take it on the chin because Jesus is Lord. Simple as that. So now we're going to get to the text. Y'all okay? It's a background info. Verse 11, Paul addresses and he says, guys, there's a time where y'all were messed up. Didn't the background info help? Now that you can look back and you're like, wow, if God can do that for them, if he can help them with their baggage. I mean, imagine coming out of being a part of the temple worship. Imagine being a part of slaughter. Imagine being demon-possessed. You bring that kind of baggage and Jesus takes care of it. 
So here's, let, let me deal very quickly with circumcision. Um, circumcision, uh, very, very quickly, what had happened within the Jewish community is they had lost the picture of what it actually was. Um, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to give you the reference. You can write it down if you, if you would like. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, God says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. So the first aspect of what circumcision really means in the Bible is that circumcision was intended to be an outward sign for an inward reality. Another verse, um, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Bible says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to, check this out, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul so that you may live. I'm not trying to be, to, um, to be crass, but for the men circumcised, it was, a, it was a daily reminder that it's not the outward that matters, but that God does a work in your heart. That was the point of circumcision. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 2. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 28 says, and Paul's talking about people who claim to be Jews simply because they have an outward uh, surgical operation. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outwardly in the flesh. But, verse 29, Romans chapter 2, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter, and His praise is not from men, but from God. So, circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of something that God does in one's heart. And secondly, um, Circumcision does not help or hinder your relationship with God. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 18, he says, Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised, nor anyone who has been called of the circumcision. Let him not. He is not to be circumcised. So throughout the New Testament, the, God is bringing people back to the point that it's not an outward sign that says that you're right with God, but it's the state of your heart. True circumcision is a matter of the heart. So if you're reading your Bible and you're like, man, this is just weird. I'm reading the Bible in the morning, trying to discover what God has for me this day, and I'm running into a surgical practice. What is going on? Every time you see that word, it should bring your heart back, bring your mind back to the work that God does in a person's heart when they become what we know as being born again. So in verse 12, he, he breaks it down and he says, look guys, remember, verse 12, that you were at that time separate from Christ. So, so, so he's saying, look guys, you were, before you were saved, in darkness, because Jesus is the light of the world. So if we're separate from Jesus, we're in darkness. And not only that, but excluded or alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That means that we're separated from a faith family. And then finally in verse 12, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having 
No hope without God in the world. How sad is it to be without hope? How how sad would it be if you had no hope? If you've had a bad week, tomorrow the sun will rise. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is powerful. He is risen from the dead. He can do, as it says over, check this out, in chapter 3, verse 20 of Ephesians, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That means that God is able to do far more than we could ever even imagine. Isn't that good news today? That God can not only do what we think that He can do, but He can do so much more. But what a terrible thing it would be to be without hope. And I just think of all of the people groups around the world right now who don't have ready access to the Gospel. They have no hope. They they have just enough knowledge of God to condemn them. And we'll deal with this in uh, in upcoming weeks on the question um, whether a person who has never heard the Gospel will be uh, even have the chance to be saved. We will deal with that. But in short, the Bible says that a person without Christ has no hope. Let me just be very upfront. If you're here today and you have never been truly saved, like what we talked about last week, you have no hope. You may have a good family. You may have a good retirement. You may be able to enjoy your life. But when it's all she wrote and the fat lady sings, you will have no hope. Charles Spurgeon said something like this. He said, in hell, everywhere is written, he's speaking figuratively, is written the word forever. What a terrible thing to end up thinking you're going to go to heaven when you really won't. But praise God, through the Gospel, the Lord Jesus comes into the picture. And that's why Paul says, notice in the beginning of verse 13, but now, but now. Meaning, at a point in the past, you were in darkness, but now you do have God, therefore you have hope. So remember when you were saved in verses 13 all the way through 22, we could sum it up like this. Rejoice in Christ. We should rejoice there in verse 13 and 17 on where we were and where God has brought us. It says in verse 13, we were formerly far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I remember... um, swimming at a local pool when I was growing up and when you'd have the dad or the mom there and they would be teaching their kid how to swim. Have you ever seen that? Right? You've got the kid and the kid is so scared, you know? And the parent's like, come on, trust me. And the child jumps. Man, that is the, the picture of somebody who's being far off. Imagine if we change the scenario and the parent is on one end of the pool and there's this child who's about to fall in with no floaties. The parent swims and comes over and delivers the child. Those who were far away have been brought near. And listen, you could have lived your life and never even gotten a speeding ticket. I have. You could be as goody two-shoes as they come, but listen, sin is not so much a matter of our action, but it is the state of our hearts. And outside of Christ, every single person is separate. And if you're here today and you've never been changed for real, you've never been born again, Jesus Christ can bring you near. Notice over in verse 17, he kind of 
pulls us together. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. That means that the people who were in Ephesus steeped in demonism and the people, the Jews, who had learned God's Word like sometimes we think we do well when we memorize a verse, right? And that's awesome, man. Like we're memorizing God's Word. We're like, what now? John 3.16. But then you look at the Jews and the Pharisees memorize the first five books of the Bible. But yet, so many of them rejected Christ. That's why the Scripture says He preached it to those who were far. Those who knew about Jesus but didn't actually know Jesus yet. Not only of what God has done in bringing us close, but what Christ has given. Notice there in verse number 14, for He is our peace. He Himself is our peace who has made both groups into one. And check this out. Broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Wow! That means that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. That means if you've got like walls in front of you or like these invisible walls between you and people in your life, that Jesus, through the Gospel, in your life, can begin the process of removing that wall of separation. Now in context, it was referring to the wall between Jew and non-Jew. When we speak of Jesus as He is our peace, He's not saying, please hear this. Jesus is not saying, I will give you, like here's a little package of peace and I'll give it to you. Here you go. Here's your peace. Here's your peace of peace. But, I will give you, please hear it, I will give you myself. Jesus does not desire to give us something that He produces if we could term it like that. But Jesus requires, what He desires, rather, is to give us Himself. What a great thing! Because if He's giving us like all of these gifts, then what if you run out of gifts? But if you have Him, that's why. See all this, all this, it's like this spider web that connects. That's why Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you because I am with you and I am in you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Wouldn't it be an incredible thing that some of you who have fractured relationships today, you say, Jesus, I don't know how to do it, but I want to begin to remove the wall of separation between me and the people who I love. And notice what he's taken away there in verse 14. He's taken away this wall of separation. That means that outside of Christ, relationships cannot last. Like people say, well, I'm a, this is my friend. Well, why is that your friend? Well, we go shopping together. We go hunting together. We go to um, flea markets together, whatever it may be. But what happens when the other person is sick and no longer able to do what your friendship is based upon? Are you still friends? Well, often some of us have experienced relationships like that. They're only so good as we can mutually do that activity together. And then after one of us gets sick or loses interest, the relationship falls away. But Jesus is saying right here very clearly that through the power of the Gospel, we can have, check it out, a real relationship that will last. Amen? I mean, through the Gospel, we can have a relationship that's going to continue and last. 
I just think of the Berlin Wall, man, and I have some German friends, and they were like always excited when the anniversary came around that, that, that day each year because what it pictured is a removal of a wall that separated people. And what Christ desires to do is remove the wall of separation. And then notice what Jesus suffered there in verse 15. He took all of this in His flesh. Man, what, what, what a picture of grace. Uh, my dad... I don't know about you guys, but my parents believed in, in corporal punishment. Sometimes I thought it was going to be, end up being capital punishment, but it was corporate punishment. And My dad told me the story one time of, of a dad who uh, his son had done wrong, and, and his dad, instead of spanking the kid, uh, spanked his own leg. Now, my dad never actually did that. My dad always spanked me. He, he gave me the story, but didn't necessarily act it out. But, but I mean, you, you think of that like taking the punishment on yourself force what somebody else has done. Bailing someone out with not something that you have, but what Jesus gave was His life. Man, this is such an awesome picture there in verses 19 through 22. It pictures that you're no longer, verse 19, aliens and strangers. Isn't it weird like when you first meet somebody? Like if you're over at their house? Like how awkward it can be? Anybody with me? Like the awkward experiences of well, I don't know, you know, like maybe what to do or to say. And then there is awkward silence. Do we have any fans of awkward silence? Okay. It's just kind of like neither person knows what to say. And the person who's more inclined to be talkative just starts talking about just the most random thing. And uh, it's very sometimes nerve-wracking uh, to be a stranger. But this is so awesome. Verse 19 says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And this does not mean somebody who has the word saint in front of their name. It simply means somebody who's been saved and are of God's household. Verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that means the gospel, but Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. That means the foundation for everything that we do must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, church, it's very easy for us to sometimes fall into the mode of, well, we've always done it this way. But instead, what we should do is pray and fast and say, what does God's Word say? Amen, church? Say, what does God's Word say? And we're going to follow that. And when you think of <clears throat> verse number 14, it says, for He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And when Jesus came, He kept God's law. The Ten Commandments shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Jesus kept that. You guys are glad to see a preacher moving something, right? Doing, doing physical work. When Jesus came, Jesus, not only did He refused to engage in any type of idol worship. He gave honor to the Lord. The second commandment says, you should not make for yourselves any graven images. But yet the Bible says that Jesus is the image of God. So he removed that. Amen? 
You see how this is working? You guys tracking with me? I'm like, man. And in the third commandment, you know, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When Jesus always honored the name of God, check out, this is what he did. He removed the wall of sin and of separation. And then in the, the fourth commandment, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Man, Jesus showed people what Sunday was really, or rather the Sabbath Saturday was really for. When he did that, he kept the law. And he removed brick by brick after brick. He removed the law of separation. And check it out. That's why today, through what Christ has done, the fact that Jesus has forgiven us. If you're saved this morning, that ought to motivate you. That your sins have been forgiven through what Christ has done. Amen? Christ has removed the wall of separation between us. And not only that, but Jesus says that if you lose someone in your life, some of you, you've got this wall between you and God because you lost someone, someone who you love dearly. Like, God, why did this happen? There's a promise that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, Yet shall he live. That wall is removed. And through this, we say, man, if Jesus has forgiven me, if he has brought all people together, then man, what I can do, I can remove the wall of separation between me and other people. And so there's no separation between me and other people. So like Jeff, what do I do? It wasn't my fault. I know that Jesus has removed the separation between us and God the Father through what He's done on the cross. But I've got baggage. There's people that I have hurt in the past. Some of you, there's something that you did, and it's a constant source of drain in your relationship with God and your relationship with people. It's that regret that seems to just eat through everything that you do. When you're driving down the road, you think of it. It's a verse in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 that says, Though your sins be as scarlet, He will make them white as snow. If you're here today, you say, Well, Jeff, I've been unfaithful to my family. There's a verse in John chapter 6, verse 37 that says that the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Satan will tell you, Well, you've got too much baggage to get into the vehicle of the gospel, so you might as well not even try. Jesus says, come to me. I will forgive your sin. I've removed the wall. Come to me. You say, well, Jeff, man, I, I, I have... It's not so much that what I've done to other people, but it's what people have done to me. Be very, very clear. In a group this size, there's probably multiple people who have experienced physical abuse, experienced sometimes sexual abuse, sometimes from a family member. And you feel because of what has happened, we could be here all night talking about the terrible practices that went on in that area of the world with, with, with children. And you feel because of what has happened that you are dirty today. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You've been carrying around baggage since that time until now. And Jesus says, Come to Me. When you're weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Verse 29, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. I love this part. For I am gentle and humble 
of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can we give praise to Jesus right now? That His burden is easy and His yoke is light. The fact that what someone has done against you does not mean that you are synonymous with their terrible act. It means that God can, through the Gospel, He can help you as crazy as it may seem to forgive that person and make something out of what they have done that will actually glorify God in the end. And some of you say, man, Jeff, I was abandoned. I come from a broken family. I carry around this baggage and my baggage is the fear of being abandoned. I cannot be by myself. I have this this aching fear that I will be left alone. I've been hurt in the past, but because of that, I don't think that I can trust Christ or someone in the future. Bring it to Jesus. If you're here and you have had a bad church experience, that's baggage. You say, now Jeff, what, what what are you proposing? There's a word in the Bible. Paul doesn't use it here, but the imagery is all through. That biblical word is atonement. And atonement means to cover. What Jesus did on the cross when He died and He shed His blood. You place your faith in Jesus. Your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. So that whenever God looks at you, and you think of all of the baggage that you've brought to salvation, do you know what God sees? He sees the precious, perfect blood of His Son. Amen, church? So if you're dealing with baggage this morning, the invitation is simply this. If God wants you to come down and pray for someone else, if God wants you to come and pray for yourself, just say, Jesus, today is best I know my heart. I'm asking that You would heal me from the hurts that I have incurred in my life and that You would forgive me for what I have done to others. And because the wall has been removed, today is the time of commitment for you to take the first step. Some of you, man, it may mean running out of here to make a phone call after we're through to try to bring the Gospel, bring forgiveness to those relationships. If God brings something to your mind, something that you've done, you should go to that person and say, look, I've been so wrong, but God has shown me. Would you please forgive me? Please forgive me and show your humility. And that's when God can create and transform a piece of baggage into a blessing. Let's pray.